There's a couple of books back there that you want to look at. And there's one is a paper book. It's called Prophetic Fulfillment, Spiritual, Natural, or Double. This is by Gary. Gary George. If you haven't read this, I would urge you to do it. If you struggle with how to understand prophecy, this is one of the finest pieces of work that you get a hold of. And this book has been well received in defense of the Decalogue, I mean in defense of Jesus, the new lawgiver. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. It is in response to a book that was written in defense of the Decalogue. And this was written in response to it. It's got a good reception. It needs to get more distribution. Tonight we're to talk about the Book of Romans and the Book of Romans for the 21st century. And well might you ask, <clears throat> legitimately, why would you choose a series of sermons on the Book of Romans? Well, it's not because Romans is any more inspired than the other books, because all scripture is equally inspired. Having said that, and I don't say it facetiously, if I were shipwrecked on an island and only had one book out of the Bible to have with me, I think I'd rather have the book of Romans than I would the book of 1 Kings. <laughs> That's not to downgrade 1 Kings. <laughs> Truth is like a tree. It has trunk, has leaves, has limbs, and so on. And usually a heresy is trying to treat a leaf as if it were a trunk or as if it were a limb. And we take one doctrine and that's all we see and we don't see the whole of truth and we don't see how that particular doctrine integrates into the whole. Every book in the Bible has a distinct and unique purpose or else God would not have put it into the scriptures. Many times <clears throat> the book will tell you in itself exactly why it was written. For instance, the Gospel of St. John. John says, these things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He tells you exactly why he wrote his Gospel. And if you know that when, before you start to read it, you would expect to find over and over again evidences and nudges and pushes to push you to believe in Jesus Christ. You will find two things clear as a crystal over and over again. Jesus Christ is an able Savior. Jesus Christ is a willing Savior. And you will find that over and over again. When you come to 1 John, these things have written unto you that believe. And again, you're tipped off to exactly what's going on. These things have written unto you that believe that you may have eternal life. If you were to ask me, what must I do to go to heaven? How can I be sure I'm forgiven? What must I do to be saved? I would give you the Gospel of John and say, here's a book that was written specifically to answer your question on how to be saved. If you come back to me two weeks later and say, I read your Gospel of John. I believe Jesus is the Christ. I don't question that at all. I have called on his name, asked him to save me, but I'm not sure that my faith is strong enough. I'm not sure that I really am saved. I would say, well, that John wrote another book. And he wrote the second book just to answer your second question. These things have been written unto you that believe that you may have eternal life. The purpose of this book is not to bring people to faith, but rather to demonstrate to people who say they have faith whether or not their faith is genuine. It deals with the question of assurance. 
Now, if you want to illicitly use the Bible, go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 and say, These things have been written unto you that believe, and forget that belief business, and just say, These things that are written unto you that you may have eternal life, and say, Now, this, is, this verse is teaching you that you can be sure you're saved. And it surely does teach that. But then if you go from there over to John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him hath everlasting life. This is how you be sure you're saved. You're realistically using the Bible. When John says, these things have I written to you that believe, he's not talking about believing John 3.16. He is talking about examining yourself with the evidences of what it is to have true faith, saving faith. And the key word is, one in the Gospel of John, the key word is believe. In the epistles of John, first, the epistle of 1 John, the key word is no. And there are nine tests of eternal life. So every scripture and every book in the Bible has a distinct, unique purpose, and we should learn to find that out. Certain books at certain periods of history are more relevant than other references. For instance, the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk deals with the philosophy of history. That's a book that ought to be understood today as we try to understand, as Habakkuk tried to understand why God would use the wicked nations like the uh, Assyrians and the Syrians in order to punish Israel. How can God do that and be a holy, sovereign God? Well, how can God use communism? How can God use terrorists and others and so on? The book of Habakkuk helps a Christian keep his feet on the ground and understand when nobody else does. The book of Galatians deals with the question of authority. That's a book that needs to be studied today by some Christians. There's a lot of Reformed Baptist people who need to understand the question of authority and what biblical authority is, and that would be a book that they need to read. If Paul were raised from the dead and he would write an epistle to the church today as to what is its main function and what it needs the most help with, I think Book of Romans would be the book that he would write that would be the closest to what the church needs today. Why do I say that? Well, what are some of the questions we face today? What is the true gospel? What must we add when we, when, when we preach the gospel? What must be the ingredients that we're sure we're covered? Must we preach that Jesus Christ is Lord or can we just preach Jesus Christ is Savior and you can accept him as Lord afterwards? Are we really preaching the gospel when we preach that? The whole question of the Christian life and what is the doctrine of sanctification? What part does the law play in sanctification and so on? All of these things are questions that are vital for us to understand today. On the one hand, we have easy believism, a curse. On another hand, we have constant introspection. Tom Smith calls it gooseneck Christians. We don't need that. But we also do need the truth of God. We do need to examine ourselves and see if you be in the faith. And if you won't examine yourself and see if you're a true Christian, then I would question whether or not you really understand what the gospel is. But don't make an occupation out of that. But don't be afraid that you shouldn't do it. What is the real role of the church today? Should we be involved in politics, liberal causes like open housing, anti-nuclear demonstrations, anti-communism, John Birch Society? Should we go along with the people who want to build a Bible Town USA like they did years ago? That's a futile exposition. Even if you're successful, it won't last more than 20 years. More majority in all of these things. All of these questions are dealt with in one way or another in the book of Romans. So we answer these questions. 
If someone were to ask me, what is the Christian faith? What makes it unique? What does it say that no other religion says? Why is it so essential in and of itself? And I would say, read the book of Romans and understand it. Understand its doctrines. If you want to know what Paul preached and how he evangelized and the method in which he went about preaching, read the book of Romans. Some people say Romans is one sermon that Paul preached. The first eight chapters at least are a sermon. That was some sermon. <laughs> we wrestle with it for weeks and months and so on. What is unique about the Christian faith? Read the book of Romans. Why do all men need the gospel? Why is it essential that man hear and believe the gospel? Read the book of Romans. You'll understand why. What does the gospel do? What does it accomplish? How do we know that a person has really understood and believed this gospel? What does it do? What does it always do? Read the book of Romans. The best verse in all of the scriptures that tells us a summary of the scriptures. If I were to choose one verse, one verse that best summarizes the whole scripture, I would take Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's the Christian faith all about? What's the gospel all about? It's about being saved, being justified. And how are we justified? Freely by his grace. And that word freely is the same word which is translated in John 15, verse 25, without a cause. So we can translate John 15, 25. We are, Jesus was, yeah, it's awful when you get old and your mind goes this way and you want to go that way. <laughs> That's what the lady said when she was stopped for speeding by the policeman. And he says, where are you going? And says, a hurry. She says, I want to get where I'm going before I forget where I'm supposed to go. <laughs> Being justified, that's what the Christian faith is about. Freely, without a cause. Without any cause in us, we are justified freely. And the great question is, how is it fair and right and good for a holy God to justify without a cause sinners like you and like me? And the answer is when he does it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What a text. What a summary. The book of Romans was, in, was written to those who rejected the gospel and begins with what is sin and what does it, why does man feel and know that he's guilty. The book of Galatians is not written to those who outwardly reject the gospel, but those who say they believe it, but they have corrupted it with a misunderstanding of grace. There's only one word in the book of Romans you have to understand if you're going to understand the book, and that's the word therefore. If you find out what each therefore is therefore, you will understand the book of Romans. And I don't say that facetiously. If you underline every time you come to the word therefore and ask yourself, what has the apostle proven? What is he building on? And you'll understand the whole book of Romans. And great verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What a text of scripture. Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. That all men are guilty before God. Therefore, therefore, all men are guilty without exception under God's wrath. Being justified therefore being justified. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And they have another therefore. Romans 12 1, I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. You're dealing with great chapters of scripture and that, under, uh, that outlines the book of Romans for you. 
If you want to understand the book of Romans, understand Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 is the introduction like a lawyer introduces a case. In the very beginning, the lawyer says, now this is what I'm going to prove. This is how I'm going to prove it. Then he goes ahead and gives his case and gives a proof of it. And Paul is a district attorney and he is accusing men of sin. He's accusing a defendant of being guilty before God. God is the judge and God listens to the case. If you are a unbeliever and you really study the book of Romans and you listen to this prosecutor and he describes a man who deserves the deepest hell because of the wickedness that he's in, if God blesses that truth to your heart, you will realize all of a sudden that he's talking about you and his fingers pointed right straight at you. You are the one who's guilty. You are the one who's under the wrath of God. You are the one who needs the gospel. And this gospel is the only thing that can bring you out from under the wrath of God. Paul's first thesis is all have sinned without exception and come short of the glory of God. And here's his opening statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believe it to the Jew first, also to the Greek for therein that is in this gospel that I preach is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall fear, the just shall live by faith. Now, Paul is going to proceed to examine, to explain that statement. He's going to explain what that means, and then he's going to prove it, and then he's going to bring the implications of it in his sermon as he gives out the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's like the Southerner uses this word. That's the same story as saying, I'm very proud of the gospel. I'll never forget the first time I was down south preaching and somebody asked me if I needed anything. And I said, yeah, I got to go to the store to buy some handkerchiefs. And they said, well, let's go over to the mall. And I said, I'd be fine. And they said, well, I'd be right proud to carry you over there. <laughs> I'd be right proud to do that. This is what Paul is saying here. He's not saying I'm not ashamed to tell my neighbor I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed to stand on the street corner and preach as Gary and a group up in Massachusetts do. That's not his point here. That's, of course, he's not ashamed to do that at all. But what he's talking here is intellectually. He's talking like a philosopher. He's saying, I'm not ashamed to take this gospel, I believe, to the ends of the earth. I'm not afraid to take it to every ism, every college campus, every whatever it is, whoever it is, anytime, any place. I'll stack this gospel up against every ism that there possibly is, and it will always win because it's the only thing that takes man in his predicament of human sin and depravity and dares to say, in spite of it, there's hope. Amen. And I'm not ashamed to preach this gospel. I'm not ashamed to take on anybody because the gospel will always win because the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you're intellectually ashamed of the gospel, then you really don't believe it or else you don't understand it. And you might not understand it. I didn't understand it for many years. If you would have asked me what a Christian is, I would have said somebody who does good. I had no knowledge of what the Christian faith really was. Many kids grow up believing that the Christian faith is don't dance, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go out with girls that do. That's not the gospel. 
There are many people who reject the gospel tonight who've never rejected the gospel at all because they never heard the gospel as the Bible sets it forth very clearly. Now, Paul not only says he's not ashamed of the gospel intellectually, but in Romans chapter 5, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel experientially. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am not disappointed in the gospel. If you're disappointed in the Christian faith, and if you say, I tried that once and it doesn't work, you didn't try the true gospel. You didn't understand the true gospel. You tried a false gospel. You may have been listening to a huckster from the radio or TV, and he may have convinced you that if you believed hard enough, you could get a Cadillac. He even told you to make sure you tell God which color you wanted, lest you get a color you don't like. My friend, that's not the gospel. And there are a lot of gospels out there. There's a lot of false prophets out there. When I was in Canada, one of our deacons once was talking to a guy, and the guy says, well, I believe you just ought to preach Jesus. And our deacon says, which one? Which one? If you are disappointed because what you believe didn't turn out, it didn't produce the effect that you said it would, or who somebody told you said it would, then you never tried the true gospel, or the gospel never changed you at all. Now this statement that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, Paul's opening statements, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, why? Because it reveals the righteousness of God. That ought to amaze us, that ought to surprise us. You would expect Paul to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals the amazing love of God. I'm glad it reveals the love of God, aren't you? Or he would say it reveals the grace of God. I'm glad it reveals the grace of God. But the first and foremost is it reveals the righteousness of God. The first concern of the gospel is not how do I get a sinner to love God, but how can God love a sinner like me? That's the question. Our Lord Jesus Christ offers himself to the Father before he offers himself to us. The gospel, first of all, satisfies God, satisfies his character, his holiness, his righteousness, satisfies everything about him. It reveals the righteousness of God. It justifies God in justifying sinners like you and like me. Now, you will be disappointed in preachers and fellow Christians, but you'll never be disappointed in the gospel if you believe the true gospel. But now let me tell you something and write this down on your pencil. Write this down with a pencil on your pad. God has never promised to honor your faith for your faith's sake. He promises to honor every one of his own promises. You may believe with all of your heart as strong as you want to, but if God hasn't said what you have believed, then God is not obligated to honor your faith unless your faith is rooted in a clear promise of God. You must understand the scriptures. Faith is not possible without revelation from God and a true understanding of what that revelation is if you're going to understand and believe the truth. The gospel first satisfies God. And the true gospel satisfies man. But you can never be satisfied in your conscience that you're a child of God until you're sure and that you're positive that God is satisfied with you. I learned this a long time ago. I remember at Cecil Camp many years ago, I, had, I was a chaplain and I had about 30 kids, teenagers. And the first night I gave them a sheet of paper 
with some questions on it. And I had 20 questions, but out of the 20, there was only three I was interested in. The rest of them were smokescreen. The ones I were interested in is, do you think it's possible for a person to be sure he's going to heaven before he dies? And the second question later on was, are you sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And the third question was, what must one do to be sure they're going to go to heaven when they die? Of the 30 questions, I mean, of the 30 kids who answered the 30 questions, every single one of them believed you could be sure you're going to heaven. 29 of the 30 believed they were sure they were going to heaven. There was one other question I forgot, four, there was four questions. The fourth, fourth question was, are you sure? And they said, yes, they were sure. Uh, what was the, what was the third question was? First, can you be sure? Are you sure? Oh, the third question was, do you think God is sure you're coming to heaven? And what must you do to be sure you're going to heaven? Of the 29, of the 30 kids, 29 were sure they were going to heaven. Not a single one of them was sure that God was sure they're going to heaven. <laughs> and I was laying in bed going over these things, you know, and I said to my wife, I said, how can that be? How can a person be sure that he's going to go to heaven, but he isn't sure that God thinks he's going to go to heaven? And you know why? I saw the next answer. The next answer was, what must you do to be sure? Every single one of the 29 kids used the word A-N-D. And what must you do to be sure you're going to heaven? You must believe in Jesus and live a good life. You must trust Christ and keep the law. One of them had joined the church. I told my wife, I know what's the matter with these kids. They've never heard justification by faith. I spent the whole weekend on justification by faith. For a Reformed Baptist who didn't agree with my theology, his son got saved that weekend. I don't think he's ever forgiven God for that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't think he really got saved. I think he really came to assurance of salvation for the first time of his life. God's never promised to honor anything except his word. I would rather have the weakest faith in the true gospel of Jesus Christ than I would have the strongest faith in the gospel that wasn't the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you? It is not your faith. It is the object of your faith. And the only object of saving faith is Jesus Christ the Lord. Not Jesus on a cross, not Jesus in a baby, as a baby in a mother's arms, but Jesus the Christ exalted at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Mary, at the right hand of the Father. Now Paul begins in verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Wrath is a no-no today. You're not supposed to preach about hell. You're not supposed to preach about him punishment. But Paul says all men are under wrath. And he starts with wrath. That's where he starts. That's his starting point. Rolf Barnard was an old Southern evangelist, and he used to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. You bow to him 
or you're lost and you'll go to hell. And they said, Ralph, you shouldn't preach like that. You shouldn't talk about hell. You shouldn't talk about wrath. You're too negative. Don't you know you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar? Ralph Bonner says, of course I know that, but I ain't catching flies. <laughs> I'm trying to kill sinners. Men must know they're lost. Men must know they're lost. They must know they're under the wrath of God if they do not believe in this great gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Paul says, man, I can't leave you alone because you're under the wrath of God. Now, why are men under the wrath of God? Paul will take from verse 18 of chapter 1 over to chapter 3, verse 19, just to prove one thing. Men are under the wrath of God only because of one thing. They're guilty. And guilty is a word that the world hates. Psychology will not use the word guilty because there are no guilty people. There are some bad people. There's some people who do a lot of bad things, but they're not guilty. It isn't their fault. Don't blame them. Don't try to lay a guilt trip on them. You see, guilt means you're not only going to get punished, but you deserve it. And it's that idea that man is bad enough to deserve it. And that's what men hate. It means you're going to get punished and you really deserve to be punished. You're under God's wrath. No, no. We used to have people who were rapists. We used to have people who were thieves. We used to have people who were all kinds of things. But we don't have any rapists anymore. We don't have any thieves anymore. We don't have any drunks anymore. We have sick people. And you know who made them sick? You did. You helped. You helped make them sick. Some of you parents, you helped make them sick. If you'd have just bought your kid that red wagon, you, he wouldn't have all these trouble. But that red wagon that he wanted so bad, and you wouldn't give it to him. Do you feel guilty that you made half of the world so bad? I don't. I have enough guilt that's true without having all that kind of false guilt on lately. Now, if you take Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Romans 1, 17, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. In verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Both wrath and righteousness are a revelation of God. And you'll only find it and understand it as you see it in the scriptures. It's revealed in the scriptures. Now from this point over to verse 32, the end of the chapter, Paul deals with the common sinner or the pagan, the rationalist, the man in the street. The man who says, well, I'll tell you what I believe. And Paul will show in these verses that all of these men with their, well, I believe this kind of philosophy, they're guilty, the common sinner. And then the cultured sinner, he deals with them in the first part of chapter 2. The guy who's kind of the reformer, who can look down his nose at other people, who hates the pothead, who, who thinks adultery is awful. And he's a moralist, but he hates the gospel. He hates the wrath of God. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul deals with the church sinner, the moralist, the religionist, the Jew, or the evangelical Christian, as far as that's concerned, who doesn't live what he says he's supposed to do. Now, in each case, Paul shows this group, as a group, they are guilty before God. 
He uses four universal terms in one verse of Scripture. None righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God, no, not one. None understand, none, no, not one. And what's his whole point in this? His whole point is to show you need this gospel. All men need this gospel. That's why we have missions. That's why we believe the gospel. That's why we send the gospel. No hope apart from this gospel. No help apart from this gospel. No excuse. Guilty. Under wrath. But there's a revelation from God. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There is an answer. There is hope. There is grace, but it's found only in this gospel, which I believe. Now, we must understand guilt and must understand righteousness and justification if we're going to preach the gospel to a 20th century pagan. You find in Luke 19, Luke 18, you remember the story of the prodigal, not the prodigal son, but the story of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. You remember the story? One was a Pharisee. The other was a publican. The Pharisee, the religious person, he prayed a nice big long prayer. And he found his, he came to the end of his prayer and he said, I thank thee that I'm not as other men. And then he looked down his nose at that poor publican and said, or as this publican. And the publican, he couldn't even pray. He couldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat himself on his chest and said, God be merciful to me, a poor sinner. There's a sense in which I can say the same thing that that Pharisee said. I thank God I'm not an adulterer. I thank God I'm not a thief. Don't you thank God you're not those things? The only difference between a Christian and that fellow was the Christian says the only reason I'm not is what? Because of the grace of God. That's the only reason I'm not. But he couldn't say that. Now, that poor sinner, that poor publican, when he prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner, that prayer lit on Jesus Christ and it was answered and he was forgiven. And the scripture says he went out of that temple and down to his house justified. Amen. Does that make sense to you? Amen. Doesn't to me. <laughs> that don't make sense to me. If we don't, this, this doesn't grab us. So let's put it in a 20th century garb. There were two women who went into a church service at Reformed Baptist Church in Lewisburg. And one of them was this visitor, and, and, and she was a very wonderful woman. She was a member of a church, went regularly, baked 175 brownie cakes for the ladies' cake sale, sewed pillows for the Mission, Mission Society, she was moral and chaste. She couldn't even think about committing adultery, let alone actually do it. She was the epitome of religious moral respectability. And the pastor of this church had the audacity to tell her that in spite of all of those good things, all of those wonderful things she did, she was a lost sinner and she was under the wrath of God. Another lady came in and she was the exact opposite. She was immoral. She was a pothead. She had drug marks, some marks on her, needle marks on her arm where she took drugs and she could swear for 10 minutes without saying the same word twice. And she hears Lester preach, the pastor. 
And all of a sudden, there's a very painful feeling in her heart, and she begins to cry. And she says, life was never meant the way I'm living. Is it possible, is it possible that God in heaven could love and save a poor guilty sinner like me? And Lester tells her, not only can he, but he will. And she believes the gospel. And she walks out of that door, justified, forgiven of all of her sins. And we tell that first woman, if she will believe, she will also be justified. But if she doesn't believe, she's going to be lost because she's under the wrath of God. And she says, you're crazy. That's the stupidest gospel I ever heard in my life. You mean to tell me that that woman, that wicked woman, oh my, she can't even say it, that she's going to be gone to heaven and I'm lost. Despite all of these good things I do. And then, and then this is when preaching gets tough. We got to tell that first woman, that religious moralist, we got to tell her that those good things about her not only don't count, but they count against her. Now I know you're crazy. You mean to tell me her goodness counts against That's right. Isaiah 64, all of our what? Righteousness. righteousness is filthy rags. It doesn't say all of our badness. It says all of our righteousness. Tell a man God hates his sin. He hates his adultery. He knows that. Tell him God hates his goodness and see what happens. You know, the first time you hear the gospel, I mean the biblical gospel, you almost think you have to get drunk before you can get saved. Now that's not true. <laughs> that's not true at all. But that's what, that's, what, that's what it almost sounds like. Paul is not suggesting here that you go out and get drunk or you'll be awful bad. He's, he's not saying that you don't worry about your soul or you, you don't care. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying that when we take a little handkerchief and we take all of the good things about us and we wrap them up in a handkerchief and we take that and we hold it up before God and we say, look at all these good things I did. I'm not like that other person. We are claiming that we can earn our salvation by works and we're comparing our works to Jesus Christ. And when you compare your works to Christ, yours stinks. Right. No matter how good they are right. in and of themselves. Is that right? Amen. That's what we preach. The self-righteous person sees no mystery, no wonder, no glory, no power in the gospel. And the poor sinner sees the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Christian. If you would take all of the attributes of God, his mercy, his love, his grace, his righteousness, and so on, which righteous, which one of God's attributes give the Christian the assurance of his salvation? And if you say love, you're wrong. If you say grace, you're wrong. All the love in the world, including all the love in the heart of God, cannot forgive one sin, not one. Sin must be paid for. The attribute that gives the Christian the assurance of his salvation is the righteousness of God. It's the justice of God. What is a Christian's hope? A Christian's hope is that God will not punish sin twice. He will not punish Jesus Christ 
and then punish us for the same sin. That's why this church believes in what is called a universal atonement. No, limited atonement. <laughs> limited atonement. The doctrine that Jesus Christ will save his people, he will save all those for whom he died. That's the gospel. First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful. And what? Just. Not loving. Not gracious. He is those things. It's those things that made him give his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is the gift of Jesus Christ. It is the gift of his blood shed on the cross. It's the justice of God that makes us sure that we are forgiven of our sins. You can't have peace of conscience until you're sure that God is satisfied with you. And you cannot be sure that Jesus, that you are satisfied in God's sight until you see yourself robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And that comes only from faith in the gospel message. Jesus paid it all. All to him I left us so. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Verse 19 is the conclusion to the first great argument. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them that are under the law, and all men are under some law. Some are under the Ten Commandments, some are under the Gospel, some are under the conscience, some are under creation, but all men have a revelation from God. We know that the world, we know that all men are under, we know that whatever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, for what purpose? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That every mouth might be stopped. You know what that means? That means that you shut up. That means that you quit talking about how good you are. It means you quit talking about the church, the baptism. It quit talking about everything. We know that whatever things the law says, it says that under them and under the law for what reason? To shut their mouth. To make them see their guilt before God. But he's guilty. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I better look this up, I'm not going to quote it right. When you get old, there's two things that happen to you that are very, very bad. First one is you forget things. And the second one is Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Catch that phrase, without excuse. Creation leaves every sinner without excuse. Without excuse. Now look at chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge another. Conscience leaves all men morally inexcusably before God. Inexcusably intellectually, philosophically, guilty morally, practically in your life. Inexcusable, inexcusable, no hope, 
no excuse, none whatsoever. Man is creation witnesses to man, condemns him. Conscience witnesses to man, condemns him. Every time you turn your, every time you point your finger at another person and say, you shouldn't have done that, or you should have done this. Do you know what you're doing when you point your finger at him? You're saying, I'm not a pig, I'm not a cow, I'm a human being, I'm a moral creature, I'm made in the image of God. I know the difference between right and wrong. Do you know that God is going to hold you accountable and judge you on the basis of how you've judged other people? That's what Jesus taught. God says, I want to be fair, honest. I will judge you according to your own standard. And every word of condemnation you gave to another one will be used against you and used to judge you if you are not under the blood of Jesus Christ. Inexcusably morally inexcusably because of moral guilt. This is what C.S. Lewis called the universal ought. Verse 20 of chapter 3 is the first, therefore, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. No flesh will be put right with God because of his works. Paul is saying all of this, spends all of this time, not because he's a morbid individual, but because he says the only reason you'll ever want to trust Jesus Christ is because you see yourself condemned, till you see yourself lost. My brother Ernest said, I quit getting people, I quit trying to get people saved, I'm trying to get them lost. I've never seen a lost person get, get lost and not be saved. I've never seen a person who didn't get lost ever get saved. What Paul wants to get to is chapter 3, verse 24. I used to go to ordination services. And you know, they asked the ordinate all kinds of questions. What he believes about the millennium, whether he's a Calvinist, whether he believes women ought to wear long hair. All these questions, mighty big questions, you know. I only ever asked one question. Give us a quick review and rundown of Romans 3, 24 through 26. And if you can't do it, I flunk them. Look at 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth, that is his son, set him forth on the cross, publicly putting him into death, as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You notice the time references. If you could have put God in the witness stand back in the Old Testament time, and here's David, he's coming down the street whistling away, happy as a lark. Why are you so happy? God has justified me. He's put away my sin. He's put away my guilt. And if we could have put God in a witness chair and say, how can you justly have anything to do with that adulterous murder? What's the ground upon which you dare fellowship with him and allow him to use your name? God would not have been able to answer that except as he himself saw his son on the cross. At that point in time, at this time, it looked like God was passing over sin, but he wasn't. He brought a lamb. 
He pleaded blood. No, there was no lamb. David couldn't bring a lamb because there was no lamb's blood offered for breaking the Ten Commandments. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy. David had nothing to plead but the mercy of God, which he did. He bypassed the whole system, the whole Judaism system, the whole law, and went into the presence of God he knew as a shepherd boy. And God heard his prayer, and God saved him for Jesus' sake. As God himself saw what he was going to do, he was able to forgive David. And the cross justifies at this time what God did back there when there was not yet historically a foundation laid, but there was it laid in the person of in the purpose of God himself. That's the three texts of scripture that I ask ordinances to give a little bit of a survey of. My look at the words in that text. Justified, grace, redemption, faith, propitiation, blood, righteousness, Jesus. Are those the words that characterize your preaching? Are those the words that characterize the foundation of your gospel message to men and women? They should, because they're the heart of the gospel. Chapter four shows how Abraham was justified by faith before the law was ever given, before he was ever circumcised. And that proves that you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to be baptized, there are no ceremonies. There's no joining anything that can make you a Christian. You believe and you believe alone. Abraham is the prototype of all people who will ever be justified by grace through faith alone. You come to chapter 4, verse 5, and it's what Martin Luther called the death blow to wordmongers. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Did you ever imagine a Jew sitting in a congregation and hearing Paul say that? A Jew sits there and hears Paul and Paul says, <laughs> to him that worketh not, to him that worketh not, is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for, that's blasphemy, that's awful. You ought to cut his tongue out. What is he talking about when he says that he justifies the ungodly? God, the Holy One of Israel, justifies the ungodly. What kind of a wicked man are you that you dare to impugn the character of God? But that's the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul's not ashamed of. If, if you want to witness your Christian faith to people, say, Say, I have two questions to ask you. Number one, is it possible to be sure that you're forgiven, justified, saved, call it what you want to, is that possible to have and know for sure before you die? Is that possible? And the answer will be, well, I don't think I'm good enough to go to heaven, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm earnestly working at it. I'm honestly trying, honest I am. And you have to say, well, you can't possibly be a Christian because the first mark of a Christian is he quit working. 
to him that worketh not. Now that doesn't mean to him that doesn't care. It means to him who has given up all hope of ever earning salvation by grace. That he has totally forsaken any idea that there's something he can do or some ceremony he can go through that can wash away his sin. It is teaching him that only Jesus Christ can save from sin. You can't possibly be a Christian as long as you're working. You've got to quit working and trade that for faith. The second question you ask is this. What kind of people does God take to heaven? And do you think that you're that kind of a person? And again, they'll talk about works. Again, the answer is going to be, well, I, 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 I don't know if I'm hard enough, but I'm basically a good person. I don't commit adultery. I'm faithful to my wife. And, and, and really, I don't go to church as often as you do, but, but I am a good person. Basically, I'm a good person. I, I believe I have a good chance. I can't say for sure, but I think I, you flunked again. God doesn't save good people. He saves bad people. He saves ungodly people. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly. Can you imagine what a Jew would say that? Can you see how far off that is from what he, his whole idea of works is? You need to shock people sometimes to make them think. And when they start talking about being good, they say, didn't anybody ever tell you that good people go to hell and bad people go to heaven? And I'm going to heaven because I'm bad, not because I'm good. <laughs> is that right? That's what the gospel is. Romans chapter 4, God will not impute sin where it is deserved. And he does not and he does impute righteousness where it's not deserved. That's what Paul said. God will not impute sin even though that sin deserves to be punished when faith is in Jesus Christ. That's an awful doctrine if you don't understand grace, if you don't understand the cross. In Romans chapter 6, he deals with, shall we sin that grace may abound? Then he deals with some of the distortions that people have of the gospel. And then we come to Romans 9 through 11. It deals with the nation of Israel and the history of the nation of Israel, past, present, future. And I will very carefully, carefully exegete this verse by verse in our third, in our third message. Hmm. What? I will exegete that in my third message. In the beginning, in verse 2, or verse 1, quickly, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He starts with himself, his signature. We put the signature to him, they put the signature at the beginning. And he says, this gospel, in verse 2, he promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel that Paul preached is the gospel that Abraham believed. Don't ever confuse the two. Don't ever isolate the gospel of the old from the gospel of the new as if it was a different gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one truth of God's grace. And this gospel concerns Jesus Christ. Our, uh, in verse 3, the gospel concerns his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. 
We'll pick up with that verse tomorrow night, but let me say by way of introduction to it. There are two things happened at the cross that helps us understand what we're talking about. The believing Gentile was raised to a place of absolute equality with a Jewish believer. There are those who say the church is not in the Old Testament. And they talk about the mystery that was hid, that was made known to Paul. The gospel that Paul preached, he got it out of the Old Testament scriptures. It was confirmed by the Old Testament scriptures. There's not two gospels, one for the old and one for the new. Don't ever buy that. The mystery that Paul didn't understand, the mystery that Paul made known was not the church, but the equality of a believing Jew with a believing Gentile. That you don't find in the Old Testament, but you do find clearly the Gentiles being saved, the Gentiles being part of the people of God. But the idea that the Jew would be lowered to the position of a Gentile, and that's what an unbelieving Jew is. He's like an unbelieving Gentile. He's been lowered. The believing Gentile is raised to a place of equality with the Jewish Gentile. The Jewish, the believing, unbelieving Gentile is lowered to a place of an unbelieving Jew no longer Jew or Gentile. That's the mystery. The mystery is that there is this equality. There's one new body created by the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. And what is this gospel? It concerns Jesus Christ, Son of God, and it uses the phrase, Seed of David. Most commentators, when they come to this text of scripture, they say, Verse 3 and 4 prove the deity and the humanity of Christ. Let me read verses 3 and 4 to you. The gospel concerns Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The NIV and the KGV differ on how they translate this verse. Declared to be the Son of God with power. The NIV says that the resurrection is a declaration publicly that establishes and proves the deity of Christ. And the seed of David, that proves that he was human. And this text teaches his humanity and deity. That's a truth that's clear in the scripture, but that's not what this text is teaching. If, if Paul wants to say that Jesus is human, he would, all he has to do is say he's the son of Mary. Him being the son of David is not a proof of his, his humanity. The son of David proves he's in line to the seed to be the king, to sit in the throne of David and his established kingdom. If you notice in verse 4, it says, declared to be the son of God with power with power. The resurrection does not prove the deity of Christ alone. The deity of Christ proves, I mean, the, the resurrection proves that Christ has a power and authority tonight, which he did not have before he died on the cross. He has a power and authority given to him, not as the son of God, but as the son of Mary, the man Christ Jesus. 
And you go through the New Testament and look up at the references to the man. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. That's through the Son of Mary. Jesus went to battle with Satan, but he did not battle Satan as the Son of God. He battled him as the Son of Mary. It was a human being, a true human being, our older brother, one with us in our humanity that conquered sin and death, the man Christ Jesus. There's a man in heaven tonight, a glorified man, God-man, the man Christ Jesus, our older brother. And that's what Paul says, this gospel is a declaration that proves that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sinners he has the authority to condemn sinners. Jesus Christ is the only man who can either save or damn, nobody else. And he has that right and authority because of his redemption. This is a redemptive right that's given to him, a legal right that's given to him. Thou hast given him authority over all flesh to give as many as thou hast given him eternal life. That's a redemption that he received. This is what Philippians is talking about when he was given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That name is not Jesus. That name was given to him in his birth. The name that's given to him is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, what? That Jesus Christ, the man, that Jesus Christ is Lord, all power, all authority. Amen. What's your attitude towards that? Amen. Jesus Christ is every man's Lord. They say you make Jesus your Lord. Sorry, God beat you to it. <laughs> you don't make Jesus Lord. No, 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 remember the evangelist. And the evangelist says, now Jesus is in your hands to so do with as you choose. That's what Pilate said. What will I do with Jesus? My dear friend, that's a bunch of baloney. God put his son in human's hands once. And what did they say? Crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. And what did God do? Then God put you in his hands to do with as he chooses. And if I sit here tonight and I wasn't a Christian and I had one ounce of spiritual sense by the Holy Ghost, I would fall down before this Lord and ask him to save me. I would sue him for mercy and peace. I would believe he was the only way to heaven. And I would cry out to him, God be merciful to me, a poor sinner. I receive your son, I believe your gospel. I thank you for teaching it to me. I thank you for sending John Riesinger here. I thank you for this night. I would believe in Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. He is your Lord. The Christian is glad. The Christian says if he wasn't Lord, I'd make him Lord. The Christian rejoices that God has sent his son Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus Christ, Son of David, Son of Mary, Son of God. We thank Thee for an atonement that saves sinners, atonement that's real, for a blood that was shed that is nothing less than the blood of the Son of God. We thank You for the gospel free, whosoever believeth shall have everlasting life. We thank You that it's the sinners 
the worst of sinners, the most guilty of sinners, hope and help through Jesus Christ, hope and help through the promise of God. If there are any here tonight who have never trusted Christ, never believed this mighty gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, oh, God be gracious, open their minds and their hearts, give them repentance unto faith, and may they this very night know what it is to be born of your spirit and come into everlasting life. Accept our thanks, we pray you. Bless the rest of this conference for Christ's sake. Amen.